And so as we go further into John 3.16, we're going to take these, the, this verse step, one step at a time. And like I said, no stone left unturned. We, we have to really understand the meaning of this verse because it is a summary of what God does and who God is, especially in the life of the Christian. And more so because we're, we're going to be speaking on God's gracefulness in his salvation. The verses 14 and 15 set this verse up in the context of salvation. And, and what Nicodemus was asking about in the beginning of the chapter 3 is this entrance into the kingdom. And so what Jesus has been emphasizing this entire time is salvation and how one can be saved. Or in Nicodemus's terms, how one can see the kingdom of God and how God can bring that kingdom to us. And so this whole setup for John 3.16 is on the basis of salvation. So when we have this idea of God on what it means to be saved and how God saves, we must be clear what, on what scripture says. God saves in such a way and so we have to know what scripture says in order to understand salvation. So friends, as we Discover this and, and study this. Pay close attention because we will take this one step at a time. And it may get a little bit too uh, homeworkish or, or, or too academic, but it's only because we want to make sure you have a firm grasp on what God's word says about salvation. So as we mentioned, this is the most famous verse in scripture. It begins with God's acts. God's plan. That's why the beginning of the verse says, for God. So we have to stop there and we have to zoom in on that. Theologians call this plan God's divine decree. Within these decrees, we find his plan for redemption. The verse is corrupted when humanity reverses the verse to bring attention to the creature rather than the creator. God didn't find humanity irresistible and then devise a plan to save humanity. Rather, his plan existed long before we were even created, as Paul says, from eternity past. Friends, therefore, we must begin with God. Once again, we are all theologians some way and somehow. What we know about God what is it that we know about God? How do we know he saves and how do we know he loves us? This verse says he loves. How do we know anything about God? How do we know anything about God and his actions? These questions help us understand where or how we have come to know God. If we do know something about God, then, it's, then how did we know that? How did we get to know God? Our lives, to a certain extent, reflect what we do know about God and whether we believe it or not. In the opening sentence of Calvin's Institutes, John Calvin writes, Nearly all wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. So it's important that we understand how and what we know about God. However, what we do not know of God cannot be judged emotionally 
or through experiences, nor by general observation. We don't gather our facts about God by looking out the window of our house and saying, wow, look at this beautiful sunset. God must be an artist. Or, or we don't drive down Lakeshore Drive when we were able to drive down Lakeshore Drive and look at the beach waters and say, wow, God is, God is such a creative element. He, he is a creative creature. Though those things may be correct, we don't base our soul observation and our soul commitment to that truth based on what we can observe. What I'm trying to say is, if we were to sit down during this quarantine period, which we've been doing a lot of, and think of everything that's happening in the world right now, one can say, God must be bored. Or, negatively, God must be evil for allowing all this messed up chaos to happen. One can conclude, based off observation, that God is really not involved in his creation. Death rates are alarming. 22 million unemployed and rising. Schools have been shut down for the remainder of the year. What about the innocent children suffering at home? What about everyone that's going hungry? What about the people losing their jobs? Where then do we find our answers? If it's solely on observation, if it's solely based on what we've experienced, then we can conclude that God, therefore, is not involved. Or how other people have concluded, there is no God. But the answers are pretty simple for those who do believe in God. Pretty simple. God has revealed himself to us through the scriptures, through his word. His word is sufficient for us to know who God is. We will never know everything about God or why he does what he does. Yet, we can know everything he wants us to know about him in Scripture. Everything we need to know for our lives, everything that suffice to know about God is located and found within God's word. There's a famous postmodern adage about two small ants on an elephant. They, they try to figure out what they're on. But because of the size of the elephant, they come up with different answers. One says something because they're on the tail. The other one says something else because they're by the, the trunk. And, and they come up with different answers trying to describe this elephant that they have no idea what it is. And so many postmoderns in the postmodern thought would say, Can, we cannot define or describe God because we're too small and he's too big. It's always a very famous cop-out. In a sense, we cannot define God. And, and, and many postmoderns retract from trying to define God. Though in a sense it is true, but what we don't have to do is try to discover him on our own. What if the elephant spoke to the ants in their language and described himself to them in detail? That is what we have in God. He has spoken to us in our language 
through his word. We don't have to invent or make things up about him. It has been written down for us. So though we may be small ants trying to discover the grandeur of God, we don't do this on our own. It's provided for us in scripture. So that's why, friends, our our whole ambition in life is to get you to read his word. Think about this. We haven't been able to meet here in the church and to a certain extent keep us on check how we're doing as far as discipleship. We don't see each other. We don't know the stories. And although we can make phone calls and have Zoom interface calls and and do every other aspect on Facebook and social media, there's something missing with this touch thing. We, We can't really, really pray with each other the way it was designed to do so in in the Bible. And so what do we have left? The only thing that we have for sure that has certainty attached to it is God's Word. And we can examine our lives based on His Word. And we could get to know God based on His Word. So friends, get involved with Scripture on a daily basis. The Bible teaches us about God and especially about His decrees. What we mentioned earlier. To define them once again, I will use the 17th century Puritan minister of Dartmouth, John Flavel's definition. He says in his catechism, The decrees of God are his eternal purpose, according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Simply said, in the book of Proverbs, we can read the book of Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33, and it's a simple yet profound statement. The law is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So friends, what we know about God's plan, what we know about God's decrees, what we know about God is found in Scripture. So as the opening up of John 3.16 calls our attention, our view to God, it becomes very important for us to know why. We're in the context of redemption. We're in the context of salvation. We're in the context on how God saves. And in order to understand how God saves, we'll draw our answers from Scripture. Now it becomes very problematic when people, when humans try to devise or try to, in their human finiteness, try to modify God to fit their preconceptions or to fit their peculiarities in the sense of God cannot be like this. God cannot be like that. I wonder how many of us as theologians in the most basic sense have tried to fit God within our framework. We've often said God can't be this way because I just cannot believe in that type of God. Or, or, Or we can see some other aspects in the Old Testament about God's fury and anger and, and come up with some incredible uh, wrong answers and describe 
that very nature of God to say, well, God, it, he could have been like that in the Old Testament, but there's no way God is like that with us New Testament believers. And so what we've come to is we're coming at God with our mindset and with our understanding. And that comes falls very short of who God is. And so that's why, friends, we have the Word of God. That's why God has shown us, without mystery, there are aspects of salvation and there are aspects of God's Word that are mysterious and therefore Paul himself says it. But this is very, very clear. Scripture is very, very clear, specifically on the way God plans and foreordains things. So in order to understand God's plans or his eternal decrees or his divine decrees, we have to understand what scripture says about them. And so that's why we'll jump straight into scripture. I pray that you do have your pen and I pray that you do have a notebook because we're going to be reading a ton of scripture to get us to understand God. I can't stand up here and say, I think God is like this because you don't need my understanding about God. You need to know who God is based on what he has said. And so I'll help facilitate this proclamation to you because it's already in his words. So the decrees of God or his plans, so every time I say decree, just think of plans. I just like saying the word decree a little bit more because it has more umph to it. But, but I want you to picture that. His plans, they're found within God's wisdom. Again, this is just a summary of a bit of what we talked on last week. In the book of Psalms, which is a great starting point to understand God's plan, book of Psalms in one of the chapters, we could go to chapter 104, verse 24, it says this, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them and all. The earth is full of your creatures. God plans from his wisdom. And once more, these are words and language that humanity understands. But in a sense, we don't understand the vast knowledge and wisdom of God. God is far superior than any intellectual here on earth. Think of the smartest person you know. Think of, if, if you're a student, think of the smartest person in your class or the president of your graduating class now that you're not even going to be able to see them anymore. Uh, or think of the smartest person uh, that you've seen on television or a scientist. Not even they come close to the wisdom of God. And so what the Psalter is saying and what the psalmist is calling our attention to is that the plans of God, they're found in his wisdom. And so because God's wisdom is far superior than ours, we can trust God's plans. That's how we live our lives, based on how God plans and so we can't scrutinize God's plans because he's infinitely wiser than the most lowest of creatures, especially us. He has come to plan through careful scrutiny and deliberation. His works are found within his sovereign wisdom. 
It, it comes to point in, in times like this, those who have, who have planned out well their financial situation in life at this very moment are a little bit more at ease than those who have not. And, it, and it's, it's incredible to understand it from this perspective because people that have been saving, let's say for the past five years, ten years, and they've been setting things aside, they haven't been buying those 80-inch television screens, they haven't been buying those cars that they don't need and paying $700 a month on insurance for, and those people that have been saving and setting money aside for moments like this are, are a little bit more stable than those who have not and are looking everywhere for, for, for money and for resources. And, and why? Because there was a plan. And so even though it has, it can't compare with God's planning, but it does show this level of wisdom. So it is wise for us to save. But think about God's plans and decrees are found existent in God's wisdom and on his sovereign wisdom. God's plans also are eternal. So not only are they found within his wisdom, they're eternal. They're everlasting. And, and I want you to understand the word eternal for a bit. It, it isn't only future aspect here. God's plans are for the future and forever, but they're also found in eternity past. That's why we, we use this language. Sometimes it's not helpful, but when we say eternity past and eternity future, it just helps us remind ourselves that there is a past aspect of eternity. In the sense, there is no starting point, but it, it does go back. So what that means is that when God planned in his wisdom, he did so before anything was even created. And we find that out because Scripture points us in that direct direction. His plans, as Scripture has taught, are found in eternity. This is what Scripture teaches. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. I'll have you give you a couple of seconds to locate it. He was foreknown... Before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. What is he talking about here? He's talking about Christ. Christ the Redeemer was chosen from eternity for us. The purpose and plan of Christ was done so in eternity past. Once again, last week we celebrated resurrection. That was God's plan. Not only Good Friday where he dies, but when he resurrects. That was found in God's eternal purposes, eternal decrees. Paul says that we read this earlier in, in, in the service, at the beginning of the service, in our scripture reading in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, that he is the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him because he has chosen us before the foundation of the world. So that becomes very important. Our lifestyles reflect what we know about God especially when we consider his eternal purposes. God's eternal decrees and eternal purposes, Scripture teaches us that they are carried out 
in Christ. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 11 says, This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what Christ does is done so because it has been planned by God's eternal purposes. Keep going. Our salvation, also scripture teaches us, is a result of God's purposes from all eternity. So friends, before we get lost, go back to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What's the... What's the great initiator in this verse? For God so loved. In the sense, in this way, God loved. His love was found in his eternal plan. And we're going to talk about his attributes in the coming weeks, especially on his love and what that implies and how he carries out his love and plan. So before we move any further, everything that we've been talking about up until this moment, his divine decrees from eternity past and his outworking in, in eternity through Christ, they're all based on his love. And so that's why this verse is so, so important in our theological understanding of who God is. He does this in love. We'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to that part of the verse. However, we can see that our salvation, especially on the basis of John 3.16, is also from all eternity. I want you to think about this. We've been saved because God had foreknown that. God had ordained that. God had planned that. If he planned everything, including the universe and creation from eternity past, what makes us believe or think that our salvation is somehow a mystery to God? That's why Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Verse 9, he has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to what? According to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Remember that, friends. Before time began. What was done? Our salvation. How? Through grace. Let's read that one more time. I want you to understand this and really feel this here. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. But according to his own purpose, or divine decree, or divine plan, and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Remember Christ's works? 
We read this in Ephesians and in 1 Peter. Christ's work of salvation, the plan of his work of salvation was done so, was, was planned before time began. And so therefore we are in Christ since time begins because he has planned out our salvation. Here is a fearful example about this. Scripture in no way tries to hide or, or, or tries to make this soft. Uh, scripture doesn't sugarcoat the things that we find difficult. Turn with me to one of the scariest books in the Bible for some reason. In the book of Revelation. And I want to read this with you so you could, so you could really get it. It's the last book in the Bible. You could find it. Chapter 13. And I'm really going to focus on one verse, but I want to read several of the verses prior to that one verse. We're going to focus in on Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, but look at some of the beginning. In verse 1, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems and, it, and its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. Now what does that mean? Whenever we learn or study the book of revelations i'll explain that then but for now let's keep reading verse two and the beast that i saw was like a leopard its feet were like the bears and its mouth was like the lion's mouth and to the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound but its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast the whole world was marveled as they followed the beast. Verse 4, And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it's allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened up its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war against the saints and conquer them, and authority was given, given it over every tribe, people, language, and nation. Verse 8. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world. In the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Did you get that? In the prior verses it describes this fearful character of the beast. And the dragon. And it says that many or the world will worship him as he blasphemes God. As he says irreverent things about our great God. And he will be given authority over the nations and over tribes. And, and, and how does it qualify it? In verse 8. All who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Friends, we don't add people's names to the book of life. They're already there. 
And so our prayer is that your name be found written on the Lamb's book of life. Why? Because it was planned before the foundation of the world. Those who are blasphemous, those who completely reject God on every aspect, those who follow ulterior gods and alternative idols, those people are those who have been living their calling ever since the foundation of the world began. And we pray that they do come to God, but many will not. And it will be fine because their names were never written on God's book. It isn't as God is bringing up the divine eraser from, from the classroom and seeing how bad of a person you are and saying, hey, you know what, you really messed up this week, so I'm just going to erase your name here or, or, or divine whiteout and whites out your name for those who remember what whiteout is and, and, and puts it over your name. It doesn't work that way. Our names are already written on God's book. We cannot add any more to it. Those are fearful, fearful things. His plans, in a sense, when we say his plans are eternal, what we're saying is, and what scripture says, therefore, my friends, is that they do not change. They are consistent. They are in heading in one direction and nothing could stop their plans. Think of the contrast of the greatness of God through his eternal purposes and his eternal plan. Nothing could stop it. Not even this pandemic that we're in. We may think that, oh man, this, this threw God off course or, or God has to change his plans. No, friends. This was all along within God's plans. And that's why we find comfort in God's control. It may derail our plans here completely. It may derail our vacation plans, our work plans, our, our, our school plans. But it never derails God's plans because they are eternal. God is never surprised by the economy of the United States. God is always in control. And so the nature of this decree, we find within God's plans, his purpose. If we go back a little bit, his, his, his plans are found where? In his wisdom. His plans are, are, are found what? They, they do their work in Christ. And what else? His plans and decrees are eternal. But his plans and decrees also, scripture teaches us that they have a purpose. What's this purpose? To bring God glory. The salvation of believers and his people on earth bring God glory. We read this in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through verses 4 through 6 and 11 through 14. Therefore, the glory of God. His decrees or his plans are also effective. They don't only carry a purpose. They don't only have a, a target in mind. They will get there. They will effectively arrive. Nothing will de deter them from that. Psalm chapter 135 verses 6. The Lord does whatever he pleases in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the depths. 
He does so however he pleases. So they will come to be effective. God's plan will come to pass. God's plan in your life will come to pass. God's plan over the United States at this moment, God's plan in the world at this moment will come to pass and nothing or no one will be able to stop it. God's decree is all-encompassing. His plans not only carry the purpose, not only will fulfill that purpose, but they encompass every aspect of life. They encompass every detail of our life. In Job chapter 14, verse 5, he, they encompass even the length of our life, as Job declares. In Psalm chapter 35, verse 15, even the time that we use, our time is in God's hands. And in Job chapter 1, verse 21, it brings our attention to our suffering is also in God's hands. Open, open your Bible to, to the book of Job. I want you to see some things in the book of Job that are vastly important to understanding God's nature in his plans. In Job chapter 1, Job makes a radical declaration. After suffering and being completely, everything being taken from him, Job declares, and we'll start off in verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So in, in Job's case, Job understood that his suffering came from the Lord. Now if we rewind a little bit in chapter 1, Satan comes in and says, who can I tempt? And God allows this to happen. And so from the very beginning, we get to see that God allows for suffering in Job's life. And in Job's case, Job was far more righteous than many of us. And God allows it. So what we're trying to say and what the Bible teaches is that suffering in our own lives is found in the eternal purposes of God for us. So though it it hurts, and though it's painful, and though it, it really gets us to have a theological crisis at times, what we must understand is that if God controls everything, He controls everything that's going on with you, even when you suffer. Job replied correctly and says, naked I came in, naked I shall go. But his first object of, of, or his first objective was the worship of God because God was doing this for him. Look at what verse chapter 2 says. Verse 9 of Job. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. That's the advice his wife gave him. 
It's rather good advice in the sense because at least she understood that it also came from God. And so she's asking Job, are you still going to be this righteous man? Just curse God already and then just give up and die. But once more, Job replies as a godly man. But he said in verse 10, you speak as one of the foolish women who speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. What Job was saying to his wife was, how can we expect to only receive good from God and then bicker and, and batter about receiving that which hurts or that which is evil? See, it doesn't make any sense for us to praise God when things are good and not praise God when things are bad. And so it's not an emotional experience, friends. It's not a, an emotional factor that we could come to God. And sometimes religion gets in the way of this when, when we're like, oh, even, even if I'm in pain, oh, I'm going to keep coming. I'm going to praise the Lord because he is good. And, and, and though it sounds pious and righteous, friends, it, it isn't our attitude that really matters. It is understanding, it is what we know about God, that even in those dire circumstances, even in those dire moments of suffering, we know where it comes from. It isn't the devil that's always attacking us and bringing us bad things. And though the devil does it in Job's life, it is allowed because God allows it. He gives us the good, and he gives us the bad. Friends, this is God. He is involved in our suffering. And what better place to be than in God's hands when we are in suffering? It isn't like you're out of God's hands when you're suffering. It isn't like when you're in the hospital or you've lost your job or you're losing your loved ones or people are getting sick all around you. It isn't in those moments where you, where you have no hope or you have nowhere to go. Friend, you're still in God's hands. And that's the best place to be. Always remember that the beginning of John 3.16 for God. If God saved us, the way God saved us, if his plan was to save us, then you can rest assured that his plan will become effective. That you have been saved and that one day you will be with Christ. Take the prophet Isaiah with you during this week. Read Isaiah 46, and remember this, Isaiah 46, verses 5 and on. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire goldsmith and makes it into a God, then they fall down and worship. They lift it up to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place, and it stands there, 
It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember, verse 8, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from the ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose calling a bird of prey from the east the man of the council from far country i have spoken and i will bring it to pass i have purposed and i will do it always remember those words i alone am god and there is no other rest assured my friends that salvation that you have encountered during these times, God sustains you and holds you in his hand. It's better to be here in God's hand than anywhere else. So pray with me this morning. Father, as we close our Sunday worship service, we pray that you keep calling your sons and daughters to salvation. That those whose names have been written in the book, that they wake up, that they come to you so that they don't keep living a life of sin, a life of blasphemy, a life that has rejected you on all aspects, but that they come to you knowing that you have purposed them, that you have planned for them and that you will sustain them even during these difficult times father your church knows we as a church know that we and that all of our lives and the life of the church rests in your hands we are saved by you and we will see you one day face to face because your plans and purposes will come to pass. Bring rest and hope to those in need. Help us charge forward this week in blessing, knowing that we are your sons and daughters. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.